listening to this talk. Um, unfortunately, the talk wasn't actually recorded on, on the Sunday morning, so um, I've re-recorded it a few days later. Um, the main benefit of that is that you will not get to see any video of me. All you'll see is my wonderful PowerPoint slide, well, keynote slide, to be more accurate. Anyway, um, this is a re-recording of a, a sermon that took place on uh, mon- uh, on Sunday, sorry, Sunday the 5th of March 2023. Morning, this is our fourth and final talk in our series on Sabbath. The previous three talks are all available on our website, so please go and have a look at them. They're all excellent. So last week, uh, Marion looked at Jesus's approach to the Sabbath, um, how and why it contrasted with the approach taken by his, his contemporaries, um, and indeed by many people subsequently. Um, the week before that, Esther looked at Sabbath in the Old Testament, uh, and particularly how it was celebrated on a weekly, annual and longer term basis. Uh, but the series began three weeks ago uh, with Dave, who looked at Genesis. And if starting at the beginning is a very good place to start, then finishing at the end must be a very good place to finish. So I'm going to finish this series on Sabbath by looking at Revelation. <clears throat> Although in reality, I'm going to do a lot more than that. So if you're ready, let's go. So this person is you, or perhaps it represents humanity as a whole. I mean, your choice, the reality is it'll work either way. And this indicates uh, that this slide is going to represent throughout the whole of this talk uh, the entirety of history from beginning to end. So the beginning is, of course, Genesis and the creation story. And when Dave started this series, he stated that the seventh day in the creation narrative represented the world as it should be. Or to use the phrase that we've used throughout this series, as it should be us. And the seventh day was uh, the day that God rested and it was the day that subsequently became the Sabbath, the holy day for the children of Israel. <clears throat> and they've used the following definition of Sabbath. Harmony with God, with each other and creation. Uh, he actually also included the word flourishing, um, but I'm going to stick with harmony with God, with each other and with creation. Um, and I'm going to crop up, that's going to crop up during a few times during the course of this talk. And in Genesis, uh, this harmony was symbolised in the image of God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. This was an image of friendship, of comfort, relaxation, of celebration as well at the end of a, at the end of a day's work, the end of a, a completed day. And, and it, it, it was a symbol of things as they should be. So on the left-hand side of the slide, we have creation, the beginning, as it should be. And on the right of the slide, we have the end. And this is what Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, this is another image of as it should be us. It's it's not as homely, or as relaxed as the image of God walking in the garden. It's much more Hollywood blockbuster, in fact, and, and interestingly, whereas the focus on Genesis is on a garden, the natural world, 
The focus in Revelation is on a city, the constructing world. It's as though in Genesis, man comes into God's world, whereas in Revelation, God comes into man's world. Um, But irrespective of that, um, it's another image of harmony with God, with each other and with creation. No death or mourning or crying or pain. God dwelling with men as it should be us. And although the word Sabbath does not appear in Revelation, you may remember Dave talking a lot about the number seven in his talk um, at, the, at the beginning of this series. The Sabbath was established on the seventh day of the week because that was the day on which God rested following the successful completion of the created universe. And in the Bible, therefore, the number seven often represents the fullness and completion of creation, the as it should be-ness. And in Revelation, the number seven appears all over the place. So Revelation starts with seven letters to seven churches. And at the end, it has seven angels, seven bowls, seven plagues, all sorts of sevens. So, so Revelation, in its own way, is as much about harmony, implicitly therefore about Sabbath, as is Genesis 1. Now, when Dave was talking about Genesis, he made it clear that Genesis should not be read as history. It's theology, or theological history perhaps. And if that is true for, for Genesis, then it is most definitely true for Revelation. Revelation is not history. I mean, that's partly because it hasn't happened yet, um, but I suppose one can say it is not predicted history. It is not a prediction of a mere chronological series of events. Indeed, the, the passage that I've just read in Revelation talks about a city coming down out of heaven. Now, that's a remarkable image in itself, um, but doubly so when you realise that the, the city is dressed as a bride, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what the author of Revelation was visualising when he wrote that. I mean, it's 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 you know, a truly incredible image. So, folks, this is a metaphor, and it's a mixed metaphor at that. It expresses stuff that is inexpressible. It grasps at stuff that is ungraspable. It imagines stuff that is unimaginable. So the reality is this. I have no idea what is actually going to happen at the end of time. And neither does anyone else. And you know what? And please don't be offended by this, but I don't really care, at least not when it comes to the details. And that's that's primarily for two reasons. It's partly because what I believe is completely irrelevant. What I think is going to happen will not affect what will actually happen or not happen, as the case may be. But the main reason is that I'm basically just happy to leave it in God's hands. Kind of no matter what happens, or how it happens, or when it happens, I trust God that it will be good. Just as creation was good, so the new creation will be good. The one point I will make, though, um, before I leave this, is that the the New Testament writers, um, in Revelation, but also elsewhere, are consistent in saying that this future is all about heaven coming to earth. It is not about us going to heaven. As uh, N.T. Wright, the theologian, uh, says, the followers of the Jesus movement saw heaven and earth 
God's space and ours, if you like, as the twin halves of God's good creation. Rather than rescuing people from the latter in order to reach the former, the creator God would finally bring heaven and earth together in a great act of new creation, completing the original creative purpose by healing the entire cosmos of its ancient ills. And he goes on to say, they believe that God would then raise his people from the dead to share in and indeed to share his stewardship over this rescued and renewed creation. So this story is all about God living with humans on the earth, walking with us in the garden in the cool of the day, just as he did back at the beginning, or perhaps, using the city image, strolling with us around the holy city, taking in the sights. If it need, if we need it, the very final bit of evidence that the end will involve God coming to earth rather than us going to heaven can be seen in the final prayer of the Bible, which is, Come, Lord Jesus. The prayer is for Jesus to come to earth, not that we go to heaven. But I repeat, how this fusion of heaven and earth might look, how it will happen, what the details are, when it will happen, I have not got the foggiest idea. But we can safely say is that the harmony of Eden, the as it should be-ness of creation, no longer exists. And the harmony of the new earth, the as it should be-ness of the new creation in Revelation, does not yet exist. So we live between these two endpoints, which, in order to be consistent, we can call how it is nowness. We see the conflict between as it should be-ness and how it is nowness all the time. And one simple example is, is river pollution. We say that this is not how it should be, and the response is, no, but that's how it is. That's how the world works. So we are very well aware that the world is not as it should be, but it is, in fact, how it is now. Now, in theological terms, it's very easy to be extremely dismissive of how it is nowness. Indeed, some theologies revel in saying that everything is ruined, everything is rubbish, everything is redundant, it's all sin, 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 and horror, horror, horror. But personally, I do not think that is true. There is so much in the world that is beautiful, fulfilling, and wonderful. We can still walk in a garden in the cool of an evening, just as God did in Eden. We can still be eternally curious and experience the joy of finding stuff out. We can stare into the eye of a dragonfly. We can craft words to express our deepest emotions. We can create. We can serve. We can fill our lungs with air and scream at the top of our voice into a valley and hear the echo chase itself into the distance. We can smile and be smiled at. We can love and be loved. But even in those experiences, are we experiencing harmony with God, with each other and with creation? Are we experiencing as it should be us? Well, maybe to a very, very small degree, but I think we could probably all agree the answer to that question is probably not. It probably falls short of that, of that image of as it should be us. And perhaps this is indeed what we mean by sin. It's not that we do bad things as such, although that's a possibility, 
But it's that in everything we do, even the good things, they're not quite as it should be. So if we are not experiencing harmony, what is it that we do experience in the how it is nowness? There's a fantastic quotation from the American novelist William Faulkner. The past is never dead. It is not even past. Now, I have no idea what Faulkner was truly meaning when he wrote that. But what I take from it is that we carry our past with us. I am who I am because of my experiences and my upbringing. I am who I am because of my relationship with my parents. And they were, in turn, affected by their experiences and upbringing and their relationship with their parents, which was, in turn, affected by their experiences and upbringing, and so on and so forth. I am who I am because of my relationships with my friends, my relationships with my wife and my children. I am who I am because of my education, my career, my health, the happenstance of my daily life, the thousand tiny decisions that speckle my existence. And I carry all this with me. Or more accurately, I carry some of it with me. Because the vast majority of these experiences are forgotten. If you asked me what I did on 13th of March 2005, I would have literally no idea. So in reality, it is just a handful of experiences and memories, a tiny percentage, that for whatever reason we cling on to, or which, more probably, cling on to us. But for all of us, these handful of experiences and memories, our past, are extremely powerful because they influence our identity now and our decisions now. They influence what we think about ourselves and how we react to others. And they are the elements from our yesterdays that are alive in our today. Now, of course, Many of these memories and experiences are happy ones, are good ones. The birth of a child, a good catch in cricket, the sighting of a rare bird, an unexpected compliment, and so on and so forth. These are the happy memories that we hold on to and which give us confidence, or more accurately, self-confidence, and sometimes misplaced confidence. When we remember them, they bring us joy or resilience or comfort. But of course... Other memories that hold on to us bring shame or guilt or embarrassment or frustration or anger. And these are the memories that we would probably rather forget, but which still live kind of very forcefully within us. For many of you, things have happened that you would rather forget, but which sadly remain very much a part of your present. Because the past is never past. And just in the way that the past is never past, so the future is never future. Humans are uniquely designed to be able to imagine the future. And we carry this imagined future with us at all times. And again, I'm not saying this is bad all the time. It it can be good or bad. Our imagined future will include our dreams. Dreams are the things we want to do, the places we want to see, the people we want to be. And these can drive us to achieve great things like scientific discovery or sporting success. Or maybe our dreams are much smaller than that. Maybe it just leads to us tidying our room, doing a bit of exercise, 
kind of eating more healthily, meeting new people, saving some money for holiday, stuff like that. But that's our imagined future that makes us do those things. So we have this capacity to imagine good futures. But our ability to imagine the future, of course, also has a darker side. Because we can, and we often do, imagine things going wrong. And if that form of thinking becomes uncontrolled, it develops into worry, anxiety, and worse. And that imagined future, which of course may never happen, begins to affect our today. Our anxiety about tomorrow robs us of our joy today. And as we stand in our how it is nowness, we look backwards and forwards. When we think about how our past affects our present, we look back with envious eyes to the distant past of Eden and we see the rest, the Sabbath rest, the harmony that we yearn for. And as we think about how our future affects our present, we look forward with envious eyes to the distant future of the new creation. And again, we see the rest and the harmony that we yearn for. So looking back and looking forward, we see a world of harmony with God, with each other and with creation. But as we look at the world around us and the world within us, can we too find rest? Well, it will not surprise you to hear that uh, I think we can and that we can do so through Jesus. He was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end. Revelation 22.13 puts the following words into Jesus' mouth. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are, of course, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Nowadays, we might say that Jesus is the A to Z of everything. So whilst he was on earth, Jesus embodied the whole of history from beginning to end. He was, as it should be us, in human form. He lived in harmony with God, with others and with creation. And it was in that capacity that he began to deal with the problem of how it is nowness. And he did that by allowing how it is nowness free reign to do what it wanted with him. Jesus placed himself at the mercy of how it is nowness and let it do its worst. Because the individuals around Jesus, Pontius Pilate, the chief priests, the the people who shouted for his death, even his disciples, they were all products of their pasts and their imagined futures. They each had a unique fingerprint of confidence and shame, dreams and anxiety. As do we. And these always combine to create human weakness and fallibility. Each of the people around Jesus was uniquely fallible. And in the same way the heroes of Shakespeare's tragedies tend to be good people. But they each have a specific flaw. Something then happens to expose that flaw and they end up doing something horrific. And therein lies the tragedy. Now, Jesus' death was the inevitable consequence of the weakness and fallibilities of humanity that are inherent in our how it is nowness. His death was therefore rooted in the past and the events of Genesis, the moment when harmony was replaced with something less than harmony, when as it should be was replaced with 
how it is nowness, and set up a conflict that culminated with Jesus' murder on the cross. Jesus' death was a consequence of the past. It looked back to Genesis. But contrast that with Jesus' resurrection, which looked in the opposite direction. Jesus' resurrection looks forward to Revelation and to the end of time, to the new creation and to our future as it should be in us. Paul saw Jesus' resurrection as a precursor, as the first fruit of the new creation when all will be resurrected. So Jesus' death looked back and dealt with the problems caused. Jesus' death gives us an answer to our past. But his resurrection looked forward and pulled us towards the fulfilment of God's kingdom. Jesus' resurrection, therefore, gives us a signpost to the future. Indeed, to our future. The death and resurrection of Jesus, therefore, instigated a new period. As followers of Jesus, we are now in this weird hybrid world. We definitely are not living in as it should be us, but neither are we living in how it is now us. It is somewhere in between. It is Jesusness. And in Jesusness, there is continuity with the past because we are still familiar with the confidence and shame and dreams and anxiety of the how it is now. But we also see glimpses of the kingdom as it will be through healings, through worship, through prayer, through communion. We often describe this period um, when we talk about it as the now and not yet. We experience something of the power of God now, but nothing like the fullness of that power. So, in this Jesusness period, is there rest? Well, Jesus categorically says, I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this rest, this Sabbath rest, which we must repeat means harmony with God, with each other and with creation, is available now, at least at least in part. Back in Eden, this rest involved God walking with humanity in the garden in the cool of the day. In the new creation... Rest will mean God walking with humanity through the alleyways of the holy city. But now, in this Jesusness period, what does it mean? Well, for me, it means that he walks with us in our daily lives as we struggle with the pressures of work, of home life and of our own internal weaknesses. He walks with us not just in the cool of the evening, but in the heat of the day and in the freezing cold of the night. He walks with us in our confidence and our shame, our dreams and our anxieties. Now, of course, that by itself would be good news, but there's more. In this Jesusness period, he does not simply walk with us in our strengths and our weaknesses. He gives us the tools to start the long process of change in preparation for our role in the new creation. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Something has begun. Eternity has broken into our lives. And because something has begun, we can begin to deal with the past that we carry with us today. 
Jesus does not want us walking around with the weight of our past on our shoulders. And I think that's what he meant when he said, my yoke is light. He wants to remove the heavy yoke of shame and misplaced confidence and replace it with the light yoke of God's provision, forgiveness and freedom. He offers provision in response to our past hunger and thirst, forgiveness for our past errors and freedom from our past experiences. And in the Jesusness period, we can also look to the future. We are given hope, the hope of a future with God. We are given the spirit who is, as Paul says, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And we are given new purpose to be salt and light in the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus gives to us. So how should we respond? Well, in response to God's provision, forgiveness and freedom, our response must be to love God. And in response to eternal hope, renewed purpose and the gift of the Holy Spirit, our response must be to love others. At this point, you may have a question. Yes, but what do I do to receive this rest? Practically, how do I live each day in this Sabbath rest? Because for many people, of course, that is the burning issue. Because they've had horrific experiences in the past that they have to carry with them. Or their experience of the here and now may be blighted by anxiety about the future. And all they want is rest. Well, I wish there was a simple answer. But in my experience, it is a gradual, incremental process. As the writer of Hebrews says, in one of the more paradoxical statements in the Bible, make every effort to enter that rest. Rest involves work and effort. And none of us will achieve it fully in this life. But a good place to start is to love. As we love God through worship and prayer and service, so our minds will gradually be changed and we will be gradually freed from our pasts. And in consequence, we will worship and pray all the more. As such, the left-hand side of the slide is a virtuous circle. And as we love others through service and words, so our actions will be gradually changed. And we will gradually move into our future, which in consequence will encourage us to love all the more. As such, the right-hand side is also a virtuous circle. With every little thing we do, with every single step of kindness, patience, gentleness, forgiveness, we grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because we're placed in a church family, there's no need to go it alone. There will always be people here who will stand with you in prayer and ministry and support, so that together we will make every effort to enter that rest. But let's draw it to an end there, because this side has become horrifically messy, so let's clear it all away. And let's finish by looking at the Lord's Prayer. You will not be surprised to hear that almost everything that I've said today, in which you have said, uh, sorry, in which we've said over the whole of this sermon series, is contained within this beautiful prayer. Our Father who art in heaven is loving God. And then the next three lines are all about hope, purpose, spirit, loving others, our future. We are being called into our future. And then the final half of the Lord's Prayer is about provision, forgiveness and freedom, the stuff that God gives to us. So I want us to stand and say the Lord's Prayer together. But if your first language is not English, I invite you to say the prayer in your own language, provided that you feel comfortable doing so. 
because we know from Revelation 7 that all nations will be represented in the new creation. By praying in our different languages, we will perhaps, in some small way, bring a sense of heaven to earth and experience a sense of the future as it should be us into our lives, a sense of our eternal tomorrow in our temporal today. So let's pray.